So then. If you awaken from this illusion. Persistence of vision. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Persistence of Vision podcast. Speaking to all the children of the earth on land, sea, or in the air, and even in outer space. Inspiring conversations through talking about books. Yes. I'm host LB Dio. <laughs> and I'm Lance Fever Myers. Hello, folks. This is Persistence of Vision. Um, if uh, you didn't know, uh, we have a website. It is pov-publishing.com. Again, pov-publishing.com. There you can read poetry. You can read essays. You can read comics by world-class uh, sequential artists, as I like to call them. Um, and you can uh, see a link there to go uh, order my book, which is called Why So Much. So uh, go there again. The address is pov-publishing.com. Check it out. You can also listen to all our podcasts there. The links are stacking up. LB, who do we have today? Well, you know, Lance Fever, years ago, I wrote a book with, with my partner in crime, Lefty Lebowitz, called Invisible Frontier. And we assembled a crack team of scientists and non-scientists, of which I was the latter. <laughs> and uh, of the former, we had... George Brazen Raisin Musser. George Musser is an editor, a scientist, a Cornell man, and of course, the author of the recent Spooky Action at a Distance, a book about quantum mechanics and its more bizarre uh, permutations and connotations. George, we are very excited to welcome you to the show. Hello, George. Hi, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for joining us, man. I, I really dig this whole subject matter. Um, it's quite arcane, um, but it's super fascinating. So tell us, what is spooky action at a distance? Oh, wow. There's a, it's a, where, to, where to begin? Let me, let me just say that our assumption we make in physics, chemistry, biology, daily life generally is that we are spatial and temporal creatures that everything that happens to us that everything we do happens in space and time we have a location we reach out with our arm and we can touch things or photons can pour into our eyes everything happens through space and time and this has been just a bedrock assumption of physics going all the way back to Democritus or, or before, whenever physics is considered to have begun. But there have been these intimations that maybe not everything works by those rules, that maybe things are non-spatial temporal. And the kind of technical term we apply to that is non-locality. The idea is that locality is spatial, non-locality is somehow non-spatial. And there's been a variety of, of ways that could happen. Uh, the, the notion of gravity that we're taught or should be taught in high school and earlier Newtonian gravity is a non-local theory. The idea that the earth reaches out and grabs the moon, that's non-local. That kind of went away. Now we have a more sophisticated understanding of gravity from Einstein, which is local. But then, then there's been these new ways that non-locality, non-spatiality has come into physics. And as you say, the main one is quantum mechanics. And that's where the whole uh, spooky action at a distance comes from. It's, it's a quantum mechanical phenomenon that we see. So, 
So I'm sorry to interrupt, George, but it seems to me that Do you're, it. You're, you're, you're going to drive me quite out of my mind. You're, you're telling me that the more conventional assumptions that I have about everyday life, like the idea that if I uh, punch my wall hard enough, I'm going to hurt my hand, uh, that there is, there is a distance between me and my friend and crime partner, Lance Fever Myers, and that it would take time to traverse that distance at a certain velocity. You're saying that these things are not to be depended upon? Yes, I, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> now, it's, it's, a, it's, yeah, it's cool, right? It's almost a very definition of, of, of magic that there could be influences that aren't mediated by space and time. You could punch and then immediately knock, you know, give a nosebleed to your friend who's thousands of miles away. But here's, here's the, See, it, it has levels here, and it gets more interesting the more you delve into the subject. On the whole, our assumptions of spatiality, of, of locality, do hold. So nature's playing this kind of game with us here. It's almost like bait and switch. So we have these hints, tantalizing hints of non-locality, but at the space-time, uh, generally is okay. So lo locality generally does hold. So there's this kind of weird mix in the world of these two sets of, of phenomena. And that's actually really what the mystery is here, how we can have a coexistence of two seemingly incompatible ideas. So let's, let's back up a little bit and, and yes. talk, talk about, so the title comes from Einstein trying to explain or trying to describe how he felt about a particular phenomenon having to do with quantum entanglement. Is that right? Exactly right. So you have to rewind back to the early part of the century. The whole idea of quantum physics, very new idea. Einstein himself really was arguably the inventor of the theory. So he had the longest of anyone to really kind of sit with its strange implications. And one is that you may have heard one way to come at this is that nature is both wave and particle at the same time. It has both wave and particle aspects to it. What does that mean? One is the particle aspect is that energy comes in these little packets that we call electrons, photons, etc. It comes in this particulate uh, packaging. And But on the other hand, we've got these wave phenomena. What does that mean? A wave is a spread out phenomenon. It's a spread out effect. It connects different points in space and causes them to behave in a kind of synchronized way. And the combination of those two ideas seems really almost impossible uh, by definition. And one way to think about it is that the particles are kind of having an, an influence on one another or even on themselves, because actually particles can influence them, themselves, and that's, that's a separate question. But certainly different particles can influence each other at a distance apart from each other. This is where the whole expression spooky action at a distance comes from. Now, what's, what's funny about this, and I actually talk about this a bit in the book, the idea of action at a distance has been around in physics for a long time uh, with, with gravity theory and with even electrical magnetic forces. Uh, it's kind of gone in and out of fashion. Einstein then called it spooky action at a distance because this kind of action at a distance you get in quantum mechanics is very different from the earlier kinds and in some ways more insidious and kind of harder to to really understand 
Yes, we and, specifically mentioned a magical punch where I punch someone in a far-off place. It sounds extremely insidious. <laughs> that actually, ah, funny you say that, because that's the non-insidious version. If you could actually punch someone uh, who's not actually connecting to your to your fist, you punch someone that's you know, far from that, in other words, you're having this distance action on them, that would actually be almost easier to understand. Because you'd have this kind of straightforward, ah, I get it. I can punch someone at a distance, or I can have I can wave my wand and exert at a force at a distance. What's happening with the spooky action at distance is kind of this weird melange, this kind of weird uh, juxtaposition of distance effects and local effects at the same time. That's why it's spooky. That's why it has this added kind of element to it that is, is so weird. And uh, it troubled Einstein. Uh, so much. For instance, one re- here's here's one way that it's spooky. We can have these particles that have these connections among them, between them, such that when you act on one, the other seems to be affected by that. But you can't use it to transmit a signal. You can't actually use it to punch your friend at a distance. You can't use it to exert any kind of influence. So on the one hand, uh, we've, nature allows this kind of violation of our spatial intuitions. On the other hand, it doesn't allow it. It's just, I, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but I'm trying to get across it's the combination of these two ideas. That's the weird thing. Well, if, 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 if you'll indulge me just a second here, I, I, I kind of want to get to, the, the, to the, the meat of it, the heart of, okay, so yes, please. You, you create, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I am in no way a scientist here, but the way I understand it, is you create somehow you you at a at a common origin spot of origin you create these two particles and they fly off at different angles and and they but they have a a a, a common origin is that right mm-hmm. yep and, exactly and, got it and those two particles are entangled because partly because they had a common origin the way that they were created and then. One way, I guess, to do it would be so. Um, polarization is mm-hmm. is the direction of the of the wave or the orientation of the wave, right? So, mm-hmm. if I were to, and, and 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 these are two discrete particles that have their own identities, and one goes to the moon and one stays in my lab, and at before I measure their polarity, it could be anything, but when I run one of them through a polarization, the one on the moon, the next time I check it, when I measure that, pol- that its polarization, it's going to match. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, you got okay. it. You got completely right. So okay. here's the so, case. You sure sound like and a just, scientist, Lance, and you even have a lab. <laughs> but, if, so, but why would that not say, – say, for example, I've got a, a team on the moon, and I say – if the polarization is at a 90-degree angle, then that means everything's okay. And so I polarize mine in the lab at 90 degrees. Why would that not be an instantaneous signal to them? Ah, yeah. So this is, this is where you're getting into an excellent question. You're getting to both um, what makes it – you're getting to what makes it mysterious, actually. So let's just back up and, and do the experiment again. And let's actually talk about – uh, polarization. So I can prepare a particle, say a photon in this case, in a superposition 
of both horizontal and vertical polarization. So it's like a Schrodinger cat kind of situation. Instead of having a live and dead cat, I've got a particle in two mutually incompatible polarization states. It actually works, the whole cat thing actually, if you want to think in terms of cat, you can. It, the photon is acting like that alive and a dead cat. So you've got this cat, this cat, you've got this particle in this, in this superposition state, and you measure the particle, it will return a random result. This is the well-known uncertainty of, of quantum mechanics. All, all good, nothing, nothing mysterious, well, except if you think randomness is mysterious, but nothing terribly mysterious about that. Okay, suppose you have another particle. You also prepare it in this superposition. It too, uh, when you measure it, its polarization returns a random result. It will either be horizontally or vertically polarized 50-50, let's say, at the time. Again, no, no biggie there. But the entanglement comes in because the randomness on the both sides can be... A, it's, what happens to one randomly is the same as what happens to the other randomly. This is very different from randomness that we encounter in daily life, and this is what makes it mysterious. Now, maybe I should back up and just give a, a, an elementary metaphor. The way I like to think of it is in terms of your flipping coins. Each of those particles that can be polarized in one way or the other, 50-50, is sort of like a coin. You can actually use it. In fact, it, you can go online and create random numbers using this kind of phenomenon. So it's like you're taking a coin, flipping it. It's either heads or tails, 50-50 at random. You take another coin, flip it. Again, it comes up randomly, heads or tails. And normally in daily life or in casinos or anytime this happens, those two events are independent. So if I flip a, a coin, it, it, it almost is a very definition of randomness that it has, it's, it's, it's not dependent on what the other coin is doing. The two are independent of one another. But with entangled, yes, oh, this, is ordinary, gonna... <laughs> this, is, this is the ordinary stuff. Now, right. what's happened with entanglement is that you would flip the coins and they would always come the same result. So if I flip one coin, it's heads. The other is heads. If I flip one tails, it's tails. It's always the same. But the reason you can't now, send a signal is because you, you don't control whether it's head or tails. Yes, you got it. So what Thank happens you. is your laboratory on the moon, they tried to flip their coin. They just get a random series of results, heads, tails, heads, tails, whatever. Or in terms of polarization states, horizontal, vertical, horizontal, horizontal, vertical, whatever. On Earth, you also get a random series, horizontal, vertical, whatever. It's only when you compare them that you would then retroactively say, what? How did this happen? How did these random results have this pattern built into them? A pattern that was only evident when I compared so them. So these, these concepts of whether the universe is one thing or many things, whether it, they are, uh, whether the universe is continuous or, or discrete, uh, these are questions, as you say in the book, that go back to ancient Greek philosophers and ancient Chinese philosophers. The... But you make an interesting point about this subject in particular, this non-locality and its mysteries, where you are talking about the important contributions that are being made, or at least attempted by philosophers as well as scientists in the modern era. Yeah, I mean, this is a subject that 
um, really benefits from the insight that philosophers can can provide. So, I mean, I think that's really whenever you go to the frontiers of science, physics, cosmology, biology, um, ethics, kind of ethics of biotechnology, for example, that's really where the philosophers can can really help and are, are needed. And you see this not just in physics; you see this, as I said, in cosmology, brain science, and these other these other areas. So specifically in in quantum physics, the I, worries that Einstein had raised, and that Niels Bohr and the other others of his time really did try to grapple with. Although those two men disagreed, they basically they they were common spirits in in the search. A lot of those concerns got subsumed. They got kind of uh, bracketed or shelved in the going into the forties, fifties, even in the sixties and beyond. And it was really kind of a union of philosophers and of really philosophically minded physicists who resuscitated the whole subject. And going, I can really beginning in the eighties and nineties is really when this re-entered the mainstream. Of physics again, due to kind of this pairing of philosophical thought and physical thought, engineering as well. So it's, it's kind of been a very multidisciplinary uh, enterprise and continues to be. So I just got back a few weeks ago, actually two weeks ago, from a conference, a Foundational Questions Institute conference that, again, is a conference that mixes philosophers, cosmologists, uh, physicists, neuroscientists, people of different areas, all finding common cause on these frontier questions. There's there is a, a a reputation I believe that physicists have though for finding themselves surrounded by philosophers, religious people, uh, you know, even even people who believe in the occult, and and finding these people are all very interested in participating in what they're doing, and, and that the <laughs> physicists are are at pains to point out that they are really not particularly interested in collaborating yeah. <laughs> with non-physicists. Is that, is that fair or is that it just, it depends. It depends obviously on, on the person and, and on the types of problems that people are tackling and not everybody can contribute to this, to this field. So they do kind of have to cherry pick a little bit. Right. But I'm talking specifically of the, Kinds of philosophers of physics, I, I, I mentioned some of them in the book, or even Janan Ismail is one I just cited now, who really are are really experts in the in the in the physics. They 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 they've worked with it their entire careers, so they come to the physicists prepared to contribute. They're not just kind of spouting something that they read. They actually really had thought this deeply through, and they come with a precision of thought that actually helps on this very question. Because here's the thing. Quantum mechanics is extremely well tested. There's been no deviations of the theory. All the experiments that have been done prove its results. The question that quantum mechanics raises isn't an empirical one so much as an interpretive one. So it is one that actually demands careful thought and rethought of kind of what we already know. We just have to think about it in a new way. Hence, the philosophers are good at that. Now, it, in other areas of science where the question is more empirical, it's like, is it five or is it six? We need to go and measure in the lab whether the value of that parameter is five or six. You're not going to get much help from philosophical analysis. That's just something we have to go and, and find out. But that, this, is quanti- this is a slightly different subject. This is a, a question that's interpreted by its very nature. 
I was going to yeah chime in and say as 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 annoying <laughs> as it can be when when someone wants to to grab onto some sort of um, you know weird uh, behavior that that we see in quantum uh, physics and just run with it and start to um, you know come up with all kinds of religious or philosophical implications that it brings to the table. Um, I, I think it's kind of inevitable. I mean, um, you know, your book talks about, you know, having to reinterpret how we, you know, picture, you know, time and space and, and reality, really. I mean, because that's what it boils down to. So, of course, it's sort of inviting that sort of, you know, interpretation. That sort of, uh, you know, I mean. But at the same time, you're saying that the, they're, in addition to the quantum flapdoodle that might be emerging, <laughs> there are actually serious contributions to be made by philosophers of science. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, a couple minutes ago, I used the word holistic. And there is a word with a lot of baggage. So I was using it in a very specific sense, <laughs> very specific sense that uh, kind of the whole is more than some of its parts. And I can back that up with kind of technical ideas. That, but some people might hear the word and then bring in their own interpretation of what they mean by holistic and think of holistic medicine or whatever. And, you know, maybe those ideas have some validity or maybe they don't. But the quantum holism has nothing to do with it. It's a separate topic. It's something that is it's it's a kind of an interesting and probably extremely deep and will have philosophical and religious implications when it's worked through. But you need we need to take things in a step by step way and not kind of bring in some kind of presupposition about how the world should be and then and then see that in science and say, aha, it's confirmed my my prejudice about how the world should be. So it's I'm working a fine line here uh, as our the physicists who get in this field that you know, it is a phenomenon that it does seem paranormal, but it it isn't paranormal. This is something we can test in the lab. This is very different from other paranormal claims because this is one we can actually get at, and it's extremely limited and and kind of specific and narrow, and therefore is not related to these other paranormal claims. So it, you don't want to be scared off an important research topic because some people might misinterpret it. True. But you talk about magic in the book. You talk about the an interesting <clears throat> aspect that you've touched on already, the, the, the historical presence of magic as a subject of study by uh, scientists or, or proto-scientists and, and, and even uh, as a subject of study by some of the most important and brilliant scientists who ever lived, including Isaac Newton. Yes, I think this is absolutely a fascinating part of the story, and it's, it's interesting just to take a step back. So when I was working on the proposal for this book, I really wanted to focus on my initial kind of proposal and, and development of the project was to focus on the, the current research that people are doing in the labs and in, in, you know, on the, at the Blackboard. And my agent said, I think you really need a history chapter here. So the history idea of talking about the history actually it was something I kind of had to grow into. And it's like, well, I wasn't sure about that. But then when I started to go into this, I realized the very same issues that are being dealt with today were really articulated very early on in the history of natural philosophy, you know, even preceding the development of what we call physics. And in those times and in, in, in the intervening millennia, there was a kind of effervescence of ideas. And some people argued that uh, and it actually, maybe most people in this area thought that the the world had these almost 
supernatural connections within it. And that this is where ideas of astrology back, you know, when they were still fairly respectable concepts a thousand years ago or even hundreds of years ago, this is what they what they gained their purchase on, that maybe planets could influence events on Earth because there wasn't that really such a distance or the distance between them wasn't that meaningful. So I think, you know, ideas go through development and things that we take for granted today weren't accepted a century ago and conversely things that a century ago people believed in we no longer believed in. This is just the progress of intellectual thought. So it was entirely rational for Newton to do alchemy experiments, for Kepler to be interested in astrology. It made a lot of sense. And a lot of the ideas that then became science owe their origins to these ideas. And we we can't we shouldn't look away from that. So forces, the Newtonian concept of a force came from this idea that different objects in the natural world could show affinities to one another that didn't have any kind of mediation mechanically. So Newton was operating in this in this almost magical framework, very different from what Leibniz and Descartes thought. They thought that actually, no, there weren't these influences. Everything could be reduced to simple collisions of, of, of atoms. And Newton showed naturally, no, you can't do that. The simple collisions of atoms don't explain electrical and magnetic phenomena. They don't explain light in particular, and they certainly don't explain gravity. Um, so this, this but, but yes, George, please. I'm sorry. Uh, but do, you, do you find, as I do, that the, the whole concept of a force, while it may, that actually makes sense that it comes out of this occult background because it's, it's a very frustrating aspect of physics that it's that it seems to be almost like a, uh, just a placeholder almost. I mean, like we, like I I could be mistaken here, but I think the insane clown posse was right that we <laughs> we don't, for example, understand why magnets attract or repel each other. Is that right? Um, yes and no. So I mean, again, things go through stages. Today, with our modern understanding of interactions. Um, including the electromagnetic interaction, we don't really speak about forces in the way we used to. Forces, kind of an approximate notion that works uh, very well for kind of uh, government work. It works for understanding uh, the solar system and magnets and, and so forth. But if you were to ask what's really going on, we would actually talk in terms of fields and that the, the things we ascribe conventionally to forces are actually the the behavior of fields which have no element of action at a distance to them they're purely local what happens um, to a, a magnet or a compass needle is the magnetic field at the location of the compass needle there's no force transversing one point to the other there might be a wave going through the field that would then transmit if i wave a magnet the compass needle begins to, to kind of vibrate that's because the field has been permuted or, or perturbed by the waving of the magnet. It kind of wave. There's a wave that is set out that goes across the field and causes the compass needle to move. So we we tend not to use, at least in the uh, advanced physics, we tend not to use force concepts. For the, and this is also true with gravity. We don't think of gravity as a force in the conventional sense anymore. It's it's due to the curvature of space time. Um, so the idea of force kind of came into physics, then it, it still kind of went back out of physics. We talk about forces, of course, on a routine basis, but we don't really think they're there. 
That's that's interesting that physics kind of anticipated my objection and made a little <laughs> correction to its procedure so that it wouldn't offend me. Precisely. I do find it really fascinating, though, this, this like the interplay between uh, empirical data and interpretation and the narrative that we have to tell ourselves in order to feel like we understand. Like, so, mm. this, so you can look at all this data and until you've actually written yourself a little, a little story about it, it doesn't really gel, you know? And I feel like that's a very human thing. That's a very, uh, it's a thing we all sort of need in order to feel like we, we have a resolute uh, uh, resolution, you know, with whatever data we're, we're coming across. I mean, and I think that's kind of a, a, a big theme of your book, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I mean, we're trying to make sense of nature and we do that by forming, as you, as you put narratives about how the world is created. And that's what physics and the other natural sciences or social, all sciences uh, do. And here's a case where we are still struggling to come up with a narrative for how those particles that are separated by vast distances can nonetheless act in a coordinated way. And there's other instances I go into of similar uh, puzzles in physics that for which we currently lack a narrative. And I think the narrative, at least my reading of the physics as done today, our best guess, in other words, that the narrative is going to involve some modification to our space uh, notions of space and time. I think that's kind of the only way we can really get out of this uh, uh, this conundrum that we're in. You make it sound so easy. Yes, it's so simple. <laughs> it's a well, big undertaking. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing easy about it, obviously. So, George, but- I do have to ask one fu- one one question before we go to our lightning sure. round. Fucking magnets. How do they work? <laughs> um, well, when. I uh, I don't know if you want a tweet explanation or or um a deeper explanation. I think LB's got some sort of fixation with the, well, the I, insane clown. Listen, I'm, I'm going to be honest. A here. juggalo theme running through our podcast. Here's 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 what drives me crazy. Yes, talk to me. Everyone makes fun. Of, look, I, I don't. I'm not an insane clown podcast, okay? <laughs> but everyone makes oh, fun really? of them for saying magnets. How do they work? And my idea is, I don't think anybody knows how they work. Now, tell me if I'm wrong about that. Well, you know, it's one of these funny things. What does it mean to really understand something? So, yes, we do have a a description of how magnets work, as I said, based on modifications to the electromagnetic field. And magnets, uh, unlike electrical forces, have this extra element of uh, they involve motions of charges. So we have to understand those in a relativistic way. Uh, using Einstein's special theory of relativity. So yes, we can give a perfect explanation for why magnets work. But then you might ask, uh, were you to be LB, that, well, why that theory? Why do we have magnetic electromagnetic fields? Or why do we have photons? Why do we have the electromagnetic interaction? And then I would say, well, it seems to come out of this electroweak interaction. You would ask me, what does that come out of? And there's going to obviously come a limit to my ability to provide convincing answers to you. And the answer ultimately would be no. We don't, at a deep level, really know why magnets work or gravity works or whatever works. Uh, that's still awaiting a theory of everything. But that doesn't mean we can't get this stage. That's all I need to know. We can go stage by stage, dude. All I need to know. So are, are, am I right in, in uh, characterizing our body of knowledge as a castle built on a cloud? You know, Einstein did actually use uh, Luft, whatever whatever castle was in German, um, did actually use that castles built on clouds. But no, I think it's it's more just like a 
it, you're any kind of construction, it, you know, it's a step-by-step -step process. It's uh, maybe the difference actually from ordinary buildings and, and castles and so forth is that we're kind of building down. So we know what we see. We just don't know what the foundation that they're built on is, but there's something there. I mean, nature is works. I mean, everything in the natural world, you know, operates. So it's really us humans problem in a way. It's not nature's problem. Nature is just going to go on and do what it does. It's our inability to really create a convincing narrative for ourselves that's making us perplexed. Building down. Yeah. I like that. There you go. Well, you know what a, a favorite phenomenon of nature is? It's lightning. And that means it's time for our lightning round. <laughs> Here it comes. That's funny. Here it comes. Uh -oh. Are you ready? I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Okay, here we go. All right. When was the first time you fell in love with a book? Oh, probably I was just before my living memory. But one book, um, I remember, I, I still have it actually all these years later, uh, Watership Down. I loved that book when I was eight years old or whatever that was. So uh, a lot of those early books I remember were either books about space and the solar system or were novels. Okay. Good answer. I like it. Has a book ever changed your mind about anything? Oh, God, that's a good question. I mean, you know, we humans, do our minds ever change about anything? I will say I can't think of a book that's changed my mind like 180 pivot, but books have softened my certainty. They make me question my own uh, self-confidence in, in what I, I, I thought I believed. So I may not have turned and pivoted, but I certainly softened my view, and maybe I'm a bit more tolerant of, of people who have opposing views. Mm, okay. I like it. Has a book ever changed your life? Oh, God. Well, in, 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 a narrow, in a narrow way, the books on, earlier, some of the early books on non-locality changed my, my career and made me write a book on non-locality. So certainly early when I was a kid, books on space and got me interested in space. Um, so it, I don't know if they've changed my life in any other uh well, you know, I, I, my, my wife actually is a Victorian a literary theorist, and I read some Victorian novels before she did, and that made me feel awfully good about myself. But also, she then went on to write uh, her own some of her own scholarly work on those books that I had read. So I always felt I maybe introduced her to her career of choice as well. Sounds like she would be a good guest on the Persistence of Vision podcast. Maybe. Has a book ever... I'm sorry. No, what? go ahead. Okay. Has a book ever made you cry? Oh, George? I'm a tear. I'm that, I'm that kind of person. I, I tend to to cry, and and I get very emotionally invested in TV shows, and and and, and I like and that. So yes, pretty much any book with any kind of emotional uh, <laughs> outcome, I'm I'm you, you, you hear the sniffles. There's no crying in science, George. <laughs> Yeah. That, uh, okay. Has a <laughs> name a book you've you've read more than once? Oh my god. Um, you know, I actually haven't read a book more than once in a long time. But certainly, books like um, uh, Kill a Mockingbird, I probably read ten times uh, when I was a teenager. Uh, the Hobbit, I probably read a number of times. Lord of the Rings, I think the one time was enough. I couldn't bear to go through that whole thing again, but. Um, some of those early iconic books I certainly read more than once. <laughs> Lovely. 
name of a book you've read half of. <laughs> oh, you know, it's funny you say that. So I just kidding. Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow is a book that I love, but I've never actually read it from top to bottom. I probably read the whole thing more than half, but I read it in piecemeal. I read chapter one, then chapter twenty. I was I I I, I bounce around in it, so maybe that qualifies. What's that uh, David Foster Wallace uh, math book? Uh, uh, everything and more. Everything and more. Right. A brief history of infinity or something. Yeah. Like that. I've read that halfway about five times. <laughs> Next time you just need to start halfway through, and then you're good. Oh, it's it, it gets to. I mean, it, the first half is incredible, but it loses me, and I'm just not smart enough for that guy. I took it back to the bookstore and I said, "Listen, I was told there would be no math." <laughs> you know, Gravity's Rainbow. I think I only got about halfway through that. That there's another one. Yeah, I'm there too, and and I've read that the first half of that multiple times. But uh, okay, uh, the final question, the 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 million dollar oh, question for you, George, is: Do you have any poetry committed to memory? No! I'm terrible at this. I've got like song lyrics and things, but I never was a, a very good at memorizing poetry. And I've been, I've been kind of a black sheep in the family because of that. But I'm just not good at memorizing things, man. I'm just, I, and maybe that's one way. Reason, I, I think in the light, I think of it's yours. one reason I went into physics. Fair enough. Because I couldn't memorize all the of proteins. Course. Fair enough. You are not alone. Very few guests have actually graced oh, this. Oh, God. I'm sorry to poetry. let you down. <laughs> <laughs> in the light of your scholarly achievements, we're going to allow you to recite some lyrics. <laughs> Got any ACDC in, in there anywhere? No. A little uh, Irving Sorry. Berlin. Okay. Well, it has been wonderful to have you, George. And uh, the book is fantastic. And anyone out there interested in the craziness of quantum physics... Uh, should pick it up. It's it's a great read, and it really helps to explain it and explain why. Uh, who was it? F Feynman that said, "If you think you understand quantum physics, you don't understand yeah, exactly. quantum physics." Exactly. Yes. And and I I have to, I can't let you leave, George, without without uh, raising the alarm bell. Though I, you know there are going to be a lot of people who have listened to this interview. And are going to say, well, I told you astrology and magic were real. <laughs> yeah. Do you have anything to say to them? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm an empiricist. And I don't have any preconceptions going into this. If someone could prove that they occur, I would go with it. But the, fact, the empirical fact is they don't. There's been no evidence of this. And frankly, a lot of the claims just kind of don't make any sense. Um, but, you know, people. Keep proving it. Uh, they, they've got an uphill battle. Extraordinary claims, extraordinary evidence, but that—that's my—that's my feeling about this. I—I I come at it from a completely empirical point of view. You're a like scientist, it. a man of science. Thank you, George Musser, author of Spooky Action at a Distance, among many other, uh, including the well, I've always thought of sort of humorously titled. Uh, complete idiot's guide to string theory. Aha. <laughs> Good stuff. Thank, Thank you, you, George. Uh, this has been Persistent of Vision Podcast. Um, go to our website, please, pov-publishing.com. Uh, buy my book, buy LB Dio's book that's coming out September 21st. The call, it's called uh, The Goddamn Fool. Uh, you can uh, come to the release event at Malvern Books in Austin, Texas that night. Mm. Again, that's September 21st. Yes, and go to Amazon and buy George's book, Spooky Action at a Distance. Thank you, George. Thank you now. See ya.